This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us again. Few studies on the church have ever floored me like that recent Barna study on biblical worldview. You know the one I'm talking about. This was the one that showed only 10% of baby boomers have a biblical worldview. And all those numbers tend to sink with every generation until you get down to Generation Z, where only 4% were found to have a biblical worldview. Now, this can either drive us to absolute despair or it can drive us to our knees in search of wisdom from the Lord on what to do about this catastrophe. And I think it is a catastrophe. How do we share biblical truth with a global generation that desperately needs to hear it? Well, joining me today, Christian apologist Jay Warner Wallace. He is a cold case homicide detective and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He is also an adjunct professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, as well as a faculty member at Summit Ministries. Busy, busy, busy. And today we're going to be discussing the book he has just released with Sean McDowell. So the next generation will know preparing young Christians for a challenging world. And Jim, it's my delight to welcome you back to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. What you just said was so powerful about the 4%, because I think we sometimes think, well, okay, that's Gen Z. That's, those are teenagers. Of course, they have less of a biblical worldview than adults. Really? Let's flip that. If we ask them how proficient they were in expressing the, uh, the truth claims or the, uh, the strategies or the equations related to algebra, I think you'd find the equation flipped, right? Yeah. Like your teenagers probably know a heck of a lot more because they're in the middle of it. Yet as adults, we've forgotten all of it. Right. So it's not as though they're not capable of understanding or being taught and, and actually embracing and processing in their head a biblical worldview. Something else is going on. And so we've got to figure out what that something else is. Well, you're right about that. Now, some people might not realize you also have been a youth pastor. I was saying busy, busy as I'm going through your very impressive resume. It just makes me tired to read it, how busy you are. But you have some insights into students leaving the church just from your time as a youth pastor. And I'm wondering if you could share some of what you learned about that, reflecting back on you know, you know your time with students. Yeah, because I, you know, I wasn't. I, I became a Christian by looking at the evidence for Christianity as a detective. But then right away, you know, I was 35. I had never been involved at the, in the church at all. I had never, you know, been part of a church at all. And I found myself coming to church, and my kids would come to church with me, and they were in uh, elementary school. So I jumped in and started teaching my kids because they wanted, you know, they, they actually wanted me to hang out with them <laughs> in the children's ministry. Well, okay. <laughs> If you hang out long enough in children's ministry, guess what? Your pastor is going to press you into service because you're there every week. So I started teaching kids with what little I knew. And by the time I was in seminary and graduated from seminary, I was a youth pastor at the high school level. And that's where uh, I was just bivocational, right? I was working, you know, 20 hours a week uh, as a pastor and another 60 hours a week as a, a detective. It was crazy. Wow. But I can tell you that a lot of what we did in the first year was a disaster. I, I mean, I, I, my background, yeah, I'm a detective, but I also had a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in the arts. And so I started off 
designing experiences for my high schoolers that were very visual and audible and 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 you know even I would you know we would have incense and we I mean we created a space that was as artistic as I could possibly create and we did this for like a year just talking about behaviors and 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 none of it was effective in the sense that by the first break of their freshman year in college all of my graduating seniors except for one were no longer Christians and their their friends would report to me, oh yeah, so and so, you know, he's over at Sonoma State, he's over at Berkeley, and then she's no longer a Christian, or he's no longer a Christian. Hmm. I thought, wow, what am I doing wrong here? It was that experience that brought me back to the way that I became a Christian, and I started to sh- reshape my youth ministry. Uh, I'm glad I did that in time for my own kids, who when they come through that youth ministry would, could at least be exposed to a reasonable version of of the Christian faith that pushed them. To either get in or get out, uh, because and by the way, when we, when we started doing that, everyone was in. Uh, yeah. We didn't lose another student, and that for me was, I think, worth the price of admission. Well, when you are reflecting back on how you approached youth ministry at the time, well-meaning, obviously, and you wanted to be creative, you wanted to keep the kids' attention, that's half the battle sometimes in ministry. Where do you think you went wrong? What do you think you did that you would not do if you could do it all over again? Okay, so surveys have been done on this. You know, when they ask young people, why do you no longer identify as a Christian? They'll ask young people, what are the barriers to faith that you found to be just too hard to overcome? We, I want to hear what they say. And instead of us guessing it and trying to deduce it from the from the, the data, well, just just tell us what's what right. the deal. Right. About 70-30 of the responses they give us are, are rational kind of intellectual objections that they don't think, uh, they think that the other side has made these persuasively. They've discovered these online or through their friends who discovered them online. They discovered them very early between the ages of 10 and 17. And while they may never share them with their adult parents, or maybe they do share their objections and their adult parents are not able to respond, in one way or the other, about 70% of the barriers that they voice when asked are fall in that area. So I simply decided to address the claims head on. And we talk about this in the book, a simple strategy that any parent could embrace, any youth pastor, any Christian educator. And I started to teach two whys for every what. Hmm. So rather than make a claim from Scripture, which there are important claims that need to be made from Scripture, I would always try to answer the first why. Okay, why on the basis of what evidence is this true? Why would I believe this about the nature of God? What is the biblical evidence? What is the non-biblical evidence just from philosophy or clear thinking, rationality, that would bring me to this conclusion? And the second why was, okay, you've made the claim, and you've even backed it up, supported it with evidence, but now I need to know, why should I care? <laughs> why, does, why does it matter to me? Yeah. How does it apply to me as a young person who's just trying to live my life? And you've got this ancient claim, and you're a 50, at that time I was in my 40s, you're a 40-year-old youth pastor, great, that's good for you, but why should I care? So I started to stop what I was doing, which was just a, an experience that provided a lot of what's, and I started to, to provide two whys for every what. And that changed everything. Well, that's interesting because I know at another point in the book, you make make this very, very important point that it isn't just about relationships. And I think many of us who've been through youth ministry or who have been involved in youth ministry on an adult level will say everything's about connecting with the kids. Everything is about making sure that you have a safe space for them and they know you love them and you know you care about them. But you say if you don't have truth, then the relationships really don't matter because you're not, your goal is not just to have a relationship with a teenager. Your goal is for that teenager to know Jesus Christ. 
Let me say it both ways, okay? So if, if you think that just, re, just embracing and growing a large group of students or even making sure your own kids have close relationships with you, then you've lost the opportunity to leverage that equity you have to actually share truth, which ought to be the most important value we hold if we really love somebody. Don't you want them to know what is true? Yes. So I think we have to, conversely, as a guy who is now a Christian apologist, I see a lot of people in my field who are more concerned concerned about truth claims than they are about relationships. True, and I yep. get that response also. It's yep. not an either or. It's a both and. And so we have to understand, if you want to be influential with a claim, you'll have the highest chance of being influential if you marry the truth claim to a deep, true, concerning relationship you have for that person. You can say it online, you'll have only so much influence. If you have got a personal relationship with somebody, you have a far greater amount of influence. That's especially true for this generation because although they have access to more information than anyone else has ever had, they have less trust in the, uh, the source of information than anyone has ever had. Because you can imagine why, right? You think that more options gives you more trust, just the opposite. The more options you have, the less you're sure about who it is you should trust in that plethora, that palette of options. Yeah. So a, a relationship helps our students to realize that, hey, I don't know that guy, but I know this guy, and he seems to know something about this. That guy he's talking about, your kids are talking about, should be you as a, as a mom or a dad, because you have to become the best Christian case maker that your kids will ever know. You can't just buy my book and, and give it to them. But you have to actually become that person for your own kids. Yeah, and going back to something that you said earlier, Jim, you can't just look at the 4% worldview of Generation Z being biblical and say, well, I guess kids are just not sharp enough to be able to have a biblical worldview. I mean, when you look at the statistics on how many of us became Christians during that period of time or younger, that that certainly is not the case. But we're going to take a very short break. We're going to come back so the next generation will know the book. Jay Warner Wallace with us. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. After taking the morning after pill, this mom immediately felt sick and nauseated as she tried to end her pregnancy. While searching for medical care, she found a preborn center where she hoped to rule out that she was pregnant. I had an ultrasound done right then and there. After hearing the baby's heartbeat, I instantly thanked God and said, may your will be done, Lord. I'm seven months pregnant now. I thank God every day for my little miracle. Preborn centers are the largest providers of free ultrasounds in America, introducing moms in crisis to the life growing inside of them and sharing the 
the gospel in action. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Will you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-BABY. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. Great to have you along. Great to have with us Christian apologist Jay Warner Wallace out with a new book with Sean McDowell. So the next generation will know preparing young Christians for a challenging world. It is a challenging world. Jim, when we're talking about Generation Z, the older the rest of us get, the more we may feel like we don't understand those kids these days. Um, But really, you do a good job, I think, outlining for people how to understand Gen Z. Can you talk a little bit about what are the challenges for Generation Z that might be different than the challenges that older Christians will face and what we need to know about this generation? Well, uh, we tried to do an entire book, learning as much as we could, Sean and I, about um, the nature of this generation, the nature of Gen Z. Gen Z are typically those kids who are between, say, 3 and 20. If you've got high schoolers in your in your family or you're leading high schoolers or junior hires, they fall within this general description, either called iGen or Gen Z. And and one of the things that's unique about this generation, and, and we have a uh, kind of a, the temptation is always there for us as adults to think, well, I was that age, as if to say, well, whatever... There are definitely some timeless truths, we talk about those in the book, and some timely truths that define this generation in a way that's different than your or my experience. And so one of the things that defines them in a way that's unique is that unlike us, I was a digital immigrant. Nobody uses digital technology probably more than I do, but I came to it later in life. This is the first generation that has been described universally as digital natives. Yes. And, and you might think that, what does that really mean? Don't think of it negatively. Think of it as an opportunity. Because it's easy to think about attributes of Gen Z and just think of, like, five things you don't like. But instead, I want to look and see, well, what are the things that I think are, are present us with opportunities? And, and we have a, a generation here that has, a, you know, like I said before, probably the highest level of distrust. And so that means, and they are, because they have access to this kind of digital technology, at the end of their arm, they are incredible fact checkers and researchers. I mean, I know I, I, my, my daughter-in-law is just outside of Gen Z, just a little bit older, and, and I, I don't think I've ever been to a restaurant with her in which she hasn't already selected her menu item by seeing the picture of it online. She looks at the pictures online in that restaurant before, and somebody's posted it somewhere. Oh, that swordfish dish, that, that, somebody has posted that somewhere, so mm-hmm. she can see what that looks like, and she knows what, what she's ordering. But I thought, this is a visual generation. Yeah. You know, you and I, if we're going to search for something, we probably open up a Google. Or, or Bing or something, we search for articles. The, the, popu- the most popular search engine for Gen Z is YouTube. Hmm. As if to say, well, how do I, how, what's the, how do I fix this? What's, what kind of cord is used for this? I might Google that. No, they're going to look for a video, the three-minute video that shows them. Show me. That, that, that has changed the way I teach this generation. And I spend a lot of time at Summit. I spend time at youth conferences. Uh, teaching this generation. But I make sure I, I teach them visually because, let's face it, that's what's changed. That's what the phone does. It, it, it creates – I don't think many students are reading articles on their smartphone. They are instead watching videos, listening to music. They are, it's, it's, it's other forms of media. It has changed the way I speak 
As a matter of fact, I'm writing a book right now. The next book I'm writing, I'm not writing it in Word. I'm writing it in Photoshop and PowerPoint. Oh, wow. And then when that's done, when that whole presentation is done, it might take me six months to build it, I'll write the book from that presentation. Because I know that in the end, that's where the rubber meets the road for this generation. I call this language visualish. <laughs> and I think that what young people are, they've become masters of visualish. And so I, it has changed the way that I communicate truth claims to them. But even more than that, Janet, this is a relational difference. I mean, this is the loneliest generation. You might think, how is it that a generation that has more immediate access to their friends through digital technology could be and could describe themselves as the loneliest generation? Well, what they've done, I think, is sacrifice um, physical proximity for what they call relationships. Yeah. And I, it's impossible to, to experience, you and I know each other from talking on the phone how many times, but until you're in someone's physical presence to read the 90% of communication, which is nonverbal, until you can see all of that, until you can see my context, my gestures, the way I, you don't really know me. Yeah. It takes physical proximity to really know somebody. So without that kind of, I can't walk with you through your stages of life. That metaphor we use to describe our relationship requires, is drawn on an idea of walking beside someone in their physical presence. The fact that I'm on your phone as you're walking does not mean I'm walking with you. Right. Right. So I think this is something we have to keep in mind. This is, a, I think, a generation that craves the kind of relationships that cannot be had in the digital age. And here we are. Uh, in a position where we could provide those. Um, well, well, raised, we need to do that. Yeah, it raises so many questions. The first of which is Christians, obviously, are people of the book. So, yep. <laughs> you know, when you're talking about a visual age, and it certainly is true, and I've seen this with my own kids, going to YouTube rather than going to an article. They don't want to, you know, and I, we really stress reading in our home, but I know for a lot of kids, it's not about reading. It is about, you know, Pinterest or about Instagram and, and all of those different, uh, you know, sites that they enjoy, social media sites, etc. What do you do, though, when you are trying to ultimately move these kids into reading the Bible when you have a reading, I don't know, a, a lack of interest on, on a lot of parts of people who are part of that generation in actually sitting down and reading. I'm not saying they don't read, but it is a challenge in and of itself. No, it, it absolutely is. And as somebody who's an author, I have been struggling with this for the six years that I've been writing books. Yeah. Because what I, I happened to, to become an author just at the backside of book reading. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. In other words, <laughs> I'm in a post-Amazon world in which there's just thousands, in a, a post-YouTube world in which there are thousands of alternatives out there in a culture. If I do a church, for example, I go to a church where it has people who are my age or older, they're interested in books. But if I go to a, a college and speak, those kids are not probably near as likely to be interested in it. So I, well, we have shifted, for example, on my website from, from five articles a week, which is where we started, to now two videos, one uh, television broadcast, which is a video that's also a podcast, and just two articles a week. Yeah. Well, because we know that the generation we're trying to reach is not going probably to read those articles as much as they're going to watch the three-minute video. Now, I think even Jesus understood that in communicating truth claims, now, he, he, there was scripture there to read. There were scrolls of the Old Testament available in the synagogues. And what he did instead was he taught in parables, word pictures. Yep. And that idea of using word pictures is powerful. And I think I've become, in terms of communicating with young people, trying to find ways to take the same concepts, the biblical concepts. Now, again, having said that, th there is no substitute for reading the word. There just isn't. But 
I think kids will read if they think that if they're energized about it, if they're passionate, they think it's worth reading. Yes. What we have to do is help young people to realize that the answers to the questions that you long for the most, the answers to why you're here, how do we get here, why is the world so messed up, and how do we fix it, those answers are only available in one place, and it's not on YouTube. That's right. The closest it might be is if someone on YouTube is talking talking about Scripture. Yeah, yeah. So we have to help them to see that there's enough incentive to want to do that thing, which they probably is not coming to them innately anymore. By the way, even for us as readers in my generation, we were media consumers. It just so happened, though, that the media that was available to us was largely in book form. Yes. These folks are no less media consumers than we are, but what's happened is the technology has changed. I, I, for example, I think I, uh, uh, as many people get my book digitally on either a Kindle or an ebook format as purchase the, the paper version now. Mm. It's about half and half. That's crazy. So everything is shifting toward a digital platform. And I'm willing to go there. I'm willing to go with yeah. it. Here's what I would say to people who are listening. If you're a parent or a teacher or a pastor, don't resist. Find a way to use. It's kind of like when we say, oh, those telephones are going to ruin everybody. Now everyone just talks on the phone. They don't even go see each other anymore. You know, well, this is what my mom or my grandmother was probably saying about the telephone. Yeah. So we have to be able to say, look, this technology is not going back. That, that genie is not going back in the bottle. So what can we do to, to use this to leverage it for the kingdom? And right. that's what we try to do in this book, provide you with simple strategies to help you. Because I know it seems like an overwhelming task, but it's not. It's just a matter of seeing the opportunities that have been there all along that you didn't recognize before. Well, let me ask you this. When you are retooling how you reach this generation and you're moving you know, away from extensive articles, you know, shortening the articles or having fewer articles and going to more video format, what do you put in there? How do you decide what you will say in a particular video format or using digital means for communicating truth? How do you whittle it down and, and what do you whittle it down to, generally speaking? Well, what's interesting is you don't have to whittle it down because it turns out that for me to do a three-minute video, it requires like a five-page script, which no one would ever read. <laughs> but it turns out when I speak that script out and I inflect it, right, that's how you can transfer passion. It's your tone of voice. Mm-hmm. Is do I seem excited about this? Look, you know there are things that you are excited about as a family. Maybe it's a certain play that's coming to town or it's a certain movie series from Marvel or it's whatever it is, right? <laughs> I mean, there are things that we go, hey, we get to go to the movies tonight. We, we say it in a certain way, yeah. and our kids recognize our passion and enthusiasm by the way we say it. When's the last time you talked that way about going to church, yeah. <laughs> about doing anything right. that relates to the kingdom of God? We don't even use the same expressions, right, that we use when we are excited about some other opportunity. We don't see uh, our relationship with God as an opportunity. Uh, I get to. It's a have to. And in the minds of a lot of folks, it feels that way. And our kids, we just don't want them to receive it this way. So it turns out that when I first started doing videos or podcasts, when I first started doing podcasts, it would just be a, a, a blog that I would write. And I would find that I spoke it way too fast. I mean, that's going to be a short po- a podcast. <laughs> My son now does podcasts for us on our website. He's 30 years old. He writes a script that he likes to post as a blog. I can't post it as a blog. It's like five pages. Yeah. Yeah. I've got to edit it down to about 800 words yeah. because that's the most you're going to get. I'm so, I hate to say it. I see the bounce rate, right? I mean, if you've got a blog site, you know what the bounce rate is. In other words, you know how quickly people click away. They, don't even, they, won't, they aren't patient enough to read the entire thing. They yeah, that's it. true. That's true. So it's important for us to figure out what's different about this generation. And don't just fold and say, well, then forget it then. No, 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 no. 
this is a different language. If you were going to a different country and you knew you had to learn that language before you could go to preach the gospel, you would learn that language. Of course you now would. Now it's time for us to do that with our kids. Well, that's really important, and I agree with you on that. It is critical, so the next generation will know the name of the book. Jay Warner Wallace with us. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today after this break. Stay with us. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Meffer today. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest, Christian apologist and author. He and Sean McDowell have put together a great book, So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. And Jim, before we went to the break, we were talking a little bit about the media that is consumed by Generation Z and how we really need to make sure that we are harnessing the power of the media that attracts this generation to get them interested in biblical truth and going to the Word of God and reading it and knowing Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, I have a question from an apologetics perspective, since you're on the ground all the time and you know what's what's what. When you were saying initially, when we were talking about the issue of how to reach kids in youth ministry, and you were saying, you know, we want to have two whys for every what, and we want to stress, is this true? Is this truth claim actually defensible? And can we defend it from scripture? Can we defend it from philosophy? What have you? It, it has been the case that in a postmodern world, is it true is not even a question that uh, former generations may have even resonated toward because they would say, oh, our truth is relative and it's my truth, your truth. Is there still that problem or have you seen that shift at all with Generation Z? Is this a generation that is more open to the idea that there is eternal truth than, say, the millennials or even Generation X? No, I think it's actually worse, and, and, and I think that's because of technology. I think te- what technology does, and this, I started noticing this a, a couple of years ago, and I started to write about it because I thought, wow, it's fascinating to me. I mean, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and at that time, if you were going to consume media, you only had a few options that were available to you on the networks. That's it. And, and, and if you missed a show, you didn't get a chance to see it again until it was in reruns if you were lucky. You didn't right. even catch it then. You are out of luck altogether. Well, now everything is an on-demand world. Uh, nobody has to wait until 8 o'clock on Thursday. Now, sometimes uh, there are networks out there that will hold a show that way. But if you just wait until it's over, you can watch the entire show and binge it at your own pace. Everything. Netflix could release his entire series all at once. You watch it at your own pace. Mm-hmm. It's on demand. Now, what that does in the life of young people is it tells them that I have complete autonomy and control over my um, environment online. And I can find news sources that reflect my worldview. We all do that as adults as well. I can find entertainment sources that reflect my, 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 my preferences. In other words, I can create for myself my own individualized micro-narrative and support it daily with an unlimited, it seems like, a set of, of sources. I can ignore all the rest. You, know, you might be on that site, but I never go to that site. I don't like those things over there. I stay on these sites because I like these sites better. You can craft for yourself an individualized experience of reality online. Yep. 
Here we come along and say, well, you know, that might be true that you can do that, but, but there actually is an overarching meta-narrative that describes the world the way it really is, <laughs> and, and I want to share it with you. But really, how interested do you think this generation is going to be? And even uh, I, I think we have to spend some time first making a case for the existence of objective truth claims to begin with. Yeah. Now, think about that for a second. People don't really understand the difference sometimes, but there are two kinds of truth claims, subjective and objective. Subjective claims are just grounded in the subject who holds them. They are personal opinions. You know, I like chocolate chip cookies is a subjective truth claim. Um, you know, the other uh, kinds of claims are, are objective, are grounded in objects. This, for example, I'm holding in my hand is a stapler. It's not a glass of milk. It, it's not grounded in my opinion. I can have an opinion. I can think it's a glass of milk, but trust me, I can't drink out of it because it's, the truth is grounded in the object known as a stapler. Now, we have to ask questions about reality, and, and, and I don't deny that there are subjective claims. Of course there are. We all have subjective preferences. But is this kind of claim we're talking about, can I change this with my opinion? By changing my, can I turn that stapler into a glass of milk by simply changing my mind? Of course not. Okay, now, you just tested it. You know then it's an objective claim and not a subjective claim. Okay, God exists. Can I... Create the, can I make sure that God exists by changing my mind? Can I, can I keep God from existing by changing my mind? No, I can't. If he either exists or he doesn't. But my, my own personal opinion has nothing to do with their, whether he exists or he doesn't. Right. It's grounded in the object known as God. Right. We have to help kids see the difference between objective and subjective claims. Because, by the way, nobody argues or cares to get in long discussions about your personal preferences for cookies. No. But if you think, for example, that aspirin will cure cancer, okay, your opinion cannot make it cure cancer. That's an objective claim, that aspirin cures cancer. I would hope you would argue with me if I came to you and said, I think that aspirin will cure cancer. I hope you will argue with me, because you should be talking about the objective claims about reality. If God is one of those claims, the existence of God, the truth of Christianity, is more than an opinion, it's an, it could be false, it could be an objectively false claim, but it's not a matter of opinion. Those are the kinds of claims we ought to be talking about with our kids. That our kids know that, that it, this is, by the way, if you find yourself hesitant to talk about God and to talk about Christianity because you feel like, hey, they're different, they have a different belief than I do, and hey, I don't want to turn over their apple cart, you know, I don't want to, yeah, I just let them have their thing, I have my thing. That's because you are treating your belief, your your claims about Christianity as a cookie instead of a cure. Well, and isn't that part of the problem? I, I, what comes to mind as you're saying that is the study that was just done recently with millennials, and it was some insane number of millennials believe you shouldn't evangelize. And it was tied to that very thing that you just mentioned. They don't want to come across as obnoxious or offend people. I mean, you're missing the whole point of Christianity when Jesus yes. gave us the Great Commission. It wasn't about your feelings. It was about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We need to proclaim the salvation through Jesus Christ to a generation sometimes that doesn't want to hear it, but they need to hear it. Well, this is why it's so important that we don't sell Christianity as a way to have your best life now, because there's lots of different ways to have your best life now. Amen. Christianity is the cure for what is killing us spiritually. It is a cure for the cancer, the spiritual cancer we all live with because we are rebellious creatures. Yep. And so who in the world would be considered kind if they didn't share the cure for cancer, if they knew it? So this, we've got to decide what is this kind of claim. 
And we have to help our kids see the difference because I, I guarantee you, if you just cu- cut it down to cookies and cures, they get that difference. Yeah. And they would, they will, they will go to the, they'll go to the mat. They'll fight over claims related to cures for disease, and or or cures to hate to, to heal the environment. <laughs> Yeah. Right? But are they willing to go to the mat for these kinds of claims? They don't see them as objective claims. That's the question. But I think it's not outside of our ability to help them see them that way. Well, the thing that, that strikes me, and, and I think this is kind of a timeless truth as well, is there is something about being young that makes you want someone to challenge you, that, that you have a lot of energy, you have a lot of dreams, you have a lot of you know hopes, and, and you're looking into the future with endless possibilities. You know, So many people who attach themselves to any sort of ideology or became Christians really love hearing somebody say, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. To me, that Christianity is what grabbed me, not the pizza party bowling nights. It was somebody saying, if you give up your life, you will gain it. If you deny yourself and follow me, you will have eternal life. Enter by the narrow gate, not by the wide gate that leads to destruction. There is something about young people, they hear it in a way that they say, yeah, now that's something I could really get behind. And I fear we lose that when we're merely focusing on the entertainment value. Well, and I think that this is, we see this statistically, that Gen Z is concerned about what we call kind of social consciousness or, or uh, they are concerned about social issues uh, in a way that you know, is probably higher level than any other generation before them. Yes. So the problem, of course, becomes is do we detach these? Are, is that the reason why we're Christians? Are we Christians because it provides us with opportunities to serve the world in a way uh, for causes that we care about? Look, I, I think that is true of Christianity. But at the end, it's, I hate to say this, it's going to come down to is Christianity true first? Yeah. Because if it's true... If Jesus really rose from the grave, if we can demonstrate that, if that is evidentially reasonable, well, then I have a certain authority in Jesus and in the words of Jesus that is higher than any other ancient sage. I'm I'm like, Frank Turek and I always say this, we're crazy this way, but if someone comes out of the grave, we have a tendency to listen to them. (laughs) So I would say the same thing is true of Jesus. And so we have to really help our young people first, that first why. Tell me why this is true first. Now, you can get to that second why, why should it matter to me, but if I start with the second why, why it should matter to me, well, there's lots of religious worldviews that work for a lot of people. Yeah, that's right. That aren't true. Well, so and we're going to have to make sure we, we make the first why first. Oh, absolutely right. Well, we're going to go to another break. Jay Warner Wallace with us, so the next generation will know. We'll come back on Janet Mefford today after this break. Stay with us. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. 
Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford. On a 100-degree day in Ethiopia, Africa, hundreds gathered for Sunday worship outdoors, and some walked an hour to be there. Afterward, 30-year-old Cademan frantically copied scriptures from an old Bible to a piece of paper. Then his face turned sad as he closed the Bible and handed it back to its owner, one of only a few in that church of hundreds to have a Bible. You see, Cademan loves the Lord, leads his family, and is faithful at Sunday worship, but he's never read a single verse in his own Bible because Bibles are very difficult to obtain where he lives. Whoever comes our way and is able to give us a Bible, it will be a great blessing. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's Word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible. $50 sends 10. Call 800-YES-WORD. 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 Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today, talking with cold case homicide detective and Christian apologist and author Jay Warner Wallace and Sean McDowell out with a new book, So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. And we're learning a lot about Generation Z. A lot of us have children in Generation Z or perhaps grandchildren in Generation Z. Maybe you're even in Generation Z. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, Jim, as we're discussing some of the unique challenges that this generation faces, is it would strike me, and you can absolutely correct me on this if you don't agree with me, because I just want to throw it out there for your refutation or your affirmation. It seems to me from observation that this generation is also the most propagandized generation in comparison to previous American generations, simply because of the internet, because of the pervasiveness of media and Netflix and social media and all those things. That things come, ideas come in snippets, but it would seem that that, you know, nonstop onslaught of snippets makes a lot of this generation more susceptible to being fooled into something because they're not taking enough time to look at the whole story. Would you find that to be the case as you're out and about with students? Well, I think yes and no. In the sense, first of all, you and I both know, I know we both agree on this, that we, we have to be careful not to say that everyone in this generation is the cookie-cutter version of what we might call the thumbnail. Right, right, so, right, right. So, yeah, there's people all sides of the edges of the spectrum, so I want to be careful about that. But, sure. But I do think it's true what you're saying is that there are more voices in the culture. So, so it's easier to reach this generation digitally, to reach them with an idea, than it has been for any prior generation. But I do think that this is a skeptical generation that fact-checks everything, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And there's enough out there. So if I was to search the claims of Christianity online, the first, the, probably the first 40% of all responses, I don't care what you use as your search engine, if it's YouTube or if it's Google, will be negative, be the opposite side of the position. 
So I think as you see that there's a, a lot of noise, a lot of voices that are in the heads of young people. And you're right in the sense that there's all kinds of people who are trying to influence Gen Z, and mostly for financial reasons. So yeah, yeah. if you were to Google the characteristics of Gen Z, if you're going to search for that online right now, you're going to find that the, the lion's share of articles and research that has been done on Gen Z has been done by marketers hmm. who are trying to figure out how to sell what are the habits of this generation that will help us to sell them the right stuff in the right way? Sadly, true. That is, so you're right. In that sense, they, they are being seen as a target audience for sales, right? right. And, and this is the generation that is a huge, numerically, they are a huge generation. Baby boomers are, are you know, in the next 10 years as baby boomers die, the next baby boom is Gen Z. Especially if you, can, if you add in immigration in America, you will see that that generation will be larger than Gen X, millennials, and anything else that precedes it, especially as boomers are dying. Mm. So, so this is becoming a large target demographic of marketers. So you're right that, that this is the group that people are going to want to, in essence, propagandize, but for financial reasons. Now, interestingly, I think they see it. And they know that, and they have less respect for that, and they're not as easily duped, at least in that sense, right? They are researchers. They, yeah. are, uh, they, they don't think anything is trustworthy. They, they're not sure what to trust. You know, if you go on my website, it looks it's probably the same template that many other uh, websites use, right, using WordPress or whatever they're using. We all kind of look like we have a similar authority. So, yeah, right. so it's kind of like, who should I trust? Right. That's why we come back and we start every chapter with the word love. Because it turns out that that connection to students, not the love that's not connected to truth, but we're writing a book that really is largely written by two apologists, yet we're starting every chapter with a word that's connected to relationship rather than truth. Because we know if you talk to Sean or I, you're going to get the truth. The question is, are we willing to, to always take it from the approach? Look, I've got family members right now who are not Christians. And they will not listen to me anymore talk about the gospel. And they, they've heard it from me. They know the gospel. They know the claims of Christianity. And a lot of it's because I don't have the relational equity that I wish I had, because that's not the kind of person I was in their lives. Hmm. Shame on me. I've learned that if I can develop and earn the right to speak into their lives on these issues, I've got a better chance of them hearing the gospel from me. Sean has a story that he shares all the time. When he first started to question Christianity as a teenager, he came to his dad, a famous Christian apologist, and, and shared that with him. And his dad said, hey, I, this is great. You're going to search through the scriptures. You're going to find out for yourself the same way I did. This is true. I'm confident if you do that, you're going to become a Christian because it's true. And years later, he asked his dad, he said, okay, I know you said that to me years ago, but what were you really thinking? <laughs> you were kind of a little bit parried, panicked, weren't you, that I was going to... He said, no, honestly, Sean, I wasn't, and I'll tell you why. Because I knew, and, he, and I just stop it right there, if you think about what is Josh McDowell going to say, I expected Sean to tell me that Josh told him, I knew that this was true and that the evidence would lead you. No, what he said was, I knew the kind of relationship I had with you. Oh, so wow. not only did he know it was true... He knew in the end that he had the kind of relationship with Sean that would allow, uh, would, would, would allow Sean to, 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 to trust him enough for some of the things that he was guiding him in. 
And in the end, it is relationship. This is true, by the way, for every worldview. You are far more likely to be an atheist if your parents are atheists, a Muslim if your parents are Muslim, a Christian if your parents are Christian. It's in the context of those relationships. All I'm suggesting now is the time in this generation to have a thoughtful um, fact-filled relationship with your kids when it comes to Christianity, because in the end, that's going to help you inoculate them from bad ideas. And that's what we're trying to say in the book. Very good, very good. And I know we just have a few minutes left. It always goes so fast when you come on the show, Jim. It really is depressing, but I do enjoy it. <laughs> so I'm so glad to be here with it, you. It goes fast, and that, that means it's fun. But when you're talking about addressing some of the skeptical questions, the intellectual objections that kids may have to Christianity, students may have to Christianity. What is the primary intellectual objection that you hear? What would you most want Christian educators and pastors and parents to address, given that those numbers of students are so high, 70-30, when it comes to intellectual skepticism? It's almost that I do a lot of college campuses too, and there's always questions in the largest category has something to do with the problem of evil. You know, how can uh, a loving God exist if all this stuff is happening in the world? How can a loving God exist if there's this even natural evil where people are dying or born with birth defects, or or how could how could a loving God exist in the Scripture if Yahweh in the Old Testament judges entire people groups and, and has them annihilated? And, I mean, all these kinds of questions related to the loving nature and all-powerful nature of God in the context of this broken world in which we live, in which it seems like God is either not strong enough to stop it, or doesn't care enough to stop it, because why would he allow it? If he's powerful enough to end it and wants to end it, why not just end it? So I think that that's uh, one of those questions that we are going to have to be able to address with our kids, especially as they, 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 this is a world in which lots of folks clang the bell for everything that's wrong with the world. Hmm. Yet we seem to hold a worldview that suggests that there is a God who could, if he chose to, stop this. He's in control of all of it. Right. Why isn't, he in, why isn't he stopping it? So I, I do see that we're, we're going to have to be able to answer that question broadly for our kids. And that's, you know, I, by the way, when I ask that question of adults, most of us as adults were kind of scratching our head on that one, yeah. right? Yeah. So when, you're, when your 13-year-old is now um, seeing some th- three-minute video in which an atheist is, is just beating him with a stick, right, on the, because he holds the view that there's a loving God, yeah. uh, we have to be able to answer that rhetor- in a rhetorically powerful way for our kids. Well, we do. And that's going to be important going forward. Well, it is. And and I think what also is really important, I like that you begin each of your chapter titles with the word love, because truth without love is really not Christian apologetics anyway. I mean, right. when we're doing evangelism, if we don't love our neighbor... Uh, with the love of Christ, uh, that that is, you know, that's the cog in the wheel. We have to make sure that our motivation is always love for our neighbor and ultimately love for the Lord. Final word, what would you say to parents who say, I have a kid like that? Jim, I have a kid in Generation Z who I can't seem to reach with Christian truth. What do I even do as a parent? Don't panic. Uh, if you'd have met me at the age of 34 and asked, is that Officer Wallace ever going to become a Christian? Almost everyone I worked with would have said, not that dude. A lot of people <laughs> might become Christians, but not that guy. And here I am. So be patient, number one. Number two, uh, don't lose hope. We didn't want to write a book that gave you another thing to do. There are opportunities in your day, every day, to say something small that, or to have a conversation, to have some kind of experience with your kids that will inoculate them from bad ideas. Start to think Christianly. Yeah. 
Find a way to grow in your own faith. You can't pass on stuff you don't possess yet, stuff you don't have yet. So become the kind of person you want your kids to be, and you've got a great chance of your kids becoming that person later. Well, I think that's really good advice. Great book, by the way. It's called So the Next Generation Will Know. Jay Warner Wallace with us. And always good to talk to you, Jim. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Always a joy to have you here. I am always indebted to be on your show, Janet. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Well, thank you and God bless. Jay Warner Wallace. Again, the name of the book, So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. Thanks a lot for being with us today on Janet Meffer Today, and we'll see you next time.